Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 27, uh, moving down through chapter 21 and verse four. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Father, we beseech you in this hour. We ask you, Lord, that your word would sound forth as it is preached and that it would reach the hearts of men. God, that 
souls would believe on Jesus who for our sake died and was raised. Lord, as we encounter him in the scriptures, I pray that it would be in such a way that we would know something of those disciples who met the risen Christ uh, on that Emmaus road and said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened up the scriptures. Help us in this, Lord. We so very much need the working of your spirit, both in the delivery of your word and in the hearing of it. So we pray for your help in each. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the last episode in this series of back and forths where, as we have seen, you have religious leaders and experts in the law coming to Jesus asking him questions, trying to trap him, only to have Christ consistently silence them each and every time. Already we have seen the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the principal men, all seeking to destroy him. Today we come to the Sadducees. This is the first time that Luke has introduced us to this particular Jewish sect. And so he provides this parenthetical remark that's going to be helpful for us. It's going to be important as we work our way through this text. He says that these are men who deny that there is a resurrection. We actually don't know a lot about the Sadducees. Most of what we know about them is what they don't believe. The book of Acts tells us that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the, the, the Sadducees thought, thought that this life, this body, and whatever relationship you have with God in the here and now is all that there is. Once you die, that's it. There's nothing more. They were the ones you might remember that were behind Peter and John's arrest in Acts chapter four. It says there that they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching, Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the, the, the very same truth that so animated the apostles and breathed life and hope into Christ's disciples and those who lay hold of resurrection life, that same truth, that same pronouncement was a source of great frustration for this particular religious sect. If you went to Sunday school as a, as a little child, you might have heard a little saying that said the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, that might be a helpful mnemonic device, but it really isn't true. They weren't sad, they were angry. They were up in arms over the resurrection. So figure out a mnemonic, another mnemonic device and maybe we can pass it around later. They weren't sad, they were angry and they were annoyed by this whole proposition. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus, uh, that they come to Jesus in Luke chapter 20 with this question where they appeal to the scriptures, nonetheless, they go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, where you have this whole issue of leveret marriage dealt with. 
Leveret marriage is a practice where um, if a man had been married to a particular woman and he had died leaving the woman without a son, uh, that particular man's brother could step in and take the woman as his wife, fathering a child in order to raise up offspring after the deceased. Think of Ruth and Boaz. In the book of Ruth, Ruth's first husband dies, leaving her childless. And so Boaz, what does he do? He steps in as the kinsman redeemer. Uh, he, uh, Ruth chapter four, verse two, he comes in in order to, quote, perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now that the Sadducees bring up this particular practice is actually ironic because we actually see here a type of Christ and a shadow of the resurrection in this picture of a man's name being doomed apart from someone else stepping in in order that his name not be cut off forever. Leveret marriage provided a way so that in a certain sense, a man could live beyond the grave. His name would go on. Deuteronomy 25 and verse six, where this practice is described, um, it, is, it is described as, as something so that a man's name may not be blotted out. I wonder if that rings any New Testament bells in your mind. In Revelation chapter three, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So you actually have here a, a dimly veiled shadow of the hope of the glory of everlasting life and leveret marriage. Well, nevertheless, the, the Sadducees look at this practice and they come to Jesus with what they think is the perfect dilemma the perfect sort of gotcha question that they can present to him. They cling to their denial of the resurrection and yet what do they ask about? They ask about the resurrection. Their whole question is predicated on what's going to happen in the resurrection. So they are, they're duplicitous from the very get-go. Their argument is very, clever it may seem, it may seem very sophisticated, but really it's casuistry. Casuistry is what we use to describe very clever, uh, sophisticated sounding reason, rationale, uh, reasonings that are based really on unsound reasoning. Often they're based on um, very fringe, absurd ethical dilemmas and cases. Uh, the old 1828 Webster's Dictionary talks about attempts to resolve cases of doubtful propriety. Situations, in other words, where you've got these clever arguments, unsound reasoning that are really designed just to trip someone up. And that's exactly what you have here. The Sadducees cook up this bizarre uh, hypothetical case Imagine you've got this woman and her husband dies without a child, but praise God, there are six other brothers in the picture. And so the first one steps up, he dies. 
he dies too. The second and the third, likewise, you run through the whole lot and then she dies. Still no children. I heard someone preach on this text once and say, well, this is preposterous because no woman would ever live through seven husbands to begin with. Anyway, she dies, still no children. Of course, that's not the heart of the Sadducees' concern, which is what Leveret marriage was all about, about raising up children. But then comes what they think is the real zinger to Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So they think that they've caught Jesus on this technicality and that the whole problem of marriage in the afterlife legitimizes their denial of an afterlife altogether. Are you with me? You see where they're arguing from. You see the nature of their question. And just like what we have seen in this pattern that has already been established, they do not come to Jesus asking honest, open-ended questions. They don't say, Jesus, we are, we're honestly stumped by this whole issue and we need you to instruct us. Uh, Jesus, we, we receive, we accept on the face of things that there is a resurrection because you have told us that there is, but our, our foolish hearts are darkened and we need your help to, in, to, to, to help us see. We need grace to instruct us. Help us, Lord. No, they don't do that. They give Jesus this question with a list of answers that he can pick from. Which of the brothers will he have or will she have as his wife? It's a gotcha question. It's the same thing we saw with the Sanhedrin. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave, gave you this authority. If he says, well, it's from heaven, we've got him. The Jewish leaders can come in and they can have their, their heyday with him. If he says, well, it's just from earth and uh, all of his disciples and followers will leave him. The scribes and the Pharisees or and the chief priests, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Do you wanna have Rome to contend with? Or are you ready just to say you're, you're not really a king after all, it's the same kind of dynamics that are going on in our passage here today. The Sadducees are of the same stripe and ilk as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's just another setup. And so brothers and sisters, with this pattern established, laid open in Luke's gospel, one of the questions that we wanna ask ourselves is what is Luke seeking to do or to show us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this series of dialogues that all share these commonalities. Is Luke, in other words, wanting us to learn primarily about paying taxes to Caesar or about leveret marriage or about the nature of marriage in the eternal state? I would submit to you that these are not the main issues that Luke wants us to take in. What are we meant to see? Looking at this bigger picture, what comes into view? One, we see the authority and wisdom of Christ 
over against the spiritual blindness and the failure of the religious authorities. On one hand, you have the faithlessness of Israel's spiritual under-shepherds who are altogether coming against the promised Messiah contrasted with Jesus, his faithfulness as the good shepherd of the sheep. There's this whole question of who really has the authority to interpret scripture and therefore who should be listened to, who should be submitted to and honored. These are the larger themes we want to consider as we walk through the text. The Sadducees pose their question, absolutely sure there can't possibly be a satisfactory answer. They are smug. They are self-assured. But what do the gospel writers say? Jesus spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So let me direct your attention to verse 34 and let's see what Jesus would have us fix our hearts upon. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. First, Jesus tells them that you are, they are, they're overlooking something absolutely fundamental. Not just that there is an age to come. Moreover, Not just that the difference between this age and the age to come is just a matter of eternality, that the age to come is one of everlasting life. He's not just saying that. It's not just that man will live forever. What is he saying? He's saying that the age that is to come is qualitatively different from the life that you know today qualitatively different than what you know today. The Sadducees were operating on this faulty presupposition, one that says resurrection life, if there even be such a thing, must be like what we already know. But that isn't the case. This life isn't like the one that is to come. This is very exciting when you begin to consider it. He said to them, you're trying to look at the resurrection through the only paradigm that you know, this earthly, fleshly paradigm, and you can't do that. Those who are considered worthy to attain to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? For they cannot die anymore. What glorious words those are. They cannot die anymore. There will be a day when the perishable puts on the imperishable. When the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The last enemy will be destroyed and so there will be no need for procreation 
in the new heavens and earth. That belongs to the old order of things. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Sin brought death. There will be no sin in the eternal state. And so there will be no death. Jesus is making all things new through his victory over death. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who attain to that age will will personally experience the Lord God wiping away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How many of you are ready for the former things to pass away? For the consummation of all things. Brothers and sisters, let me add this also. As we, as we look at what Jesus is saying here, don't stumble over those words considered worthy. Is there anyone here today who's prepared to say that you are worthy to attain to that age? In yourself, are you worthy to attain to that age where Christ dwells in all of his everlasting glorious light? No, Luke presupposes that at this point you are taking into account everything that he has already said about a saving relationship with God through Christ who will be found in right standing with the Father at the last day. That That it will be the one like that tax collector who stood afar off, the one who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He, you remember, is the one who went down to his house justified. He is the one who was made right with the everlasting father. Those are the ones who are considered worthy. They've been made worthy, in other words. They are not worthy in themselves. They are counted worthy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age possess an imputed righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness not their own that comes by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. But you see here how Jesus will not waste time on trivialities and on meaningless debates. The Sadducees come to him with their curiosities. They come trying to entangle him. And what does Jesus do? He gets right down to this issue of this great juxtaposition between two ages of existence and those who live in each one respectively. Even as he answers their question, he is graciously provoking them, challenging their most deeply held beliefs. He deals with the issue of marriage and then having laid that issue to rest, he directs their hearts to things of an eternal nature, to where our hearts and minds need to be directed. Christ's concern here is with the fact of eternity, not with tickling your ears, not with venturing upon curiosities pertaining to truths you deny exist. 
His earthly ministry was always this way. He was always this way, always redirecting hearts and minds away from passing affairs, away from worldly issues and concerns, away from fleshly inquisitiveness that does not have at its root a real desire to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ to one that does. We often come to the Bible, we must admit, like the, the Sadducees, with our own agendas, with our own questions. Here are the two answers that I have. It's gotta be one or the other. Well, beloved, the Lord has his own agenda with us. He has his own purposes, praise God, that the scriptures bring to bear, which we must reckon with. Jesus truly is a wonderful counselor. He counsels us through the spirit, through the pages of God's word. Let's continue reckoning. The glorious fact of the resurrection, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus does something amazing here. He quotes from Exodus chapter three, the passage about the burning bush. Earlier, the Sadducees said, teacher, Moses wrote for us. Turns out they're not the only ones that know about Moses. And we have the perfect expositor here speaking now. What does Jesus say? Even Moses demonstrated the resurrection. Jesus makes a stunning argument here. He says that Moses saw significance in the tense of the verb to be, where Yahweh says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am, not I was, but I am. When God uttered those words, he was not just providing for Moses a historical reference point so that Moses could know who was speaking. He was saying something much more consequential than that. Moses wrote about a living Abraham, a living Isaac, and a living Jacob, men whose mortal bodies had fallen asleep, but whose souls are alive and are present with the Lord. The inference being Moses, whom you Sadducees say you adhere to, Moses believed in a resurrection. He did. If you ever hear someone saying that there's no mention of a resurrection in the Old Testament, point them here. Point them to this passage. Jesus goes on. He presses the point still further home. He says, now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. When God revealed himself to Moses in the bush, so long after the death of those three patriarchs, the Lord remained and continues to this very day to remain in relationship with those three men. They still exist in relationship to him, which means in turn, resurrection. Resurrection life. 
For he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. The idea there being that every living thing exists in relationship to God. In him, we live and move and have our being. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All live to him. Now, dear ones, in the the truest and greatest sense, this is true, all live to him. This is truest and best lived out in redemption, where the working of God's grace enables us to live all of life before the face and unto the glory of God. Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The God that we worship today is the God of the living, not the dead. Resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Is your faith today in the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Savior? Does your heart issue a loud amen when you hear Paul say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? You know that through faith, In his name, you will follow him in everlasting life. Look at verse 39. The scribes show show up back on the scene. And some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. I want you to just look at those couple of sentences there for a moment. Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. You see what is going on there. The scribes affirm the fact of the resurrection, contrary to the Sadducees. That was the one thing that they had going for them in this little interchange. They agree with Jesus, and yet that doesn't mean a thing in terms of the orientation of their lives. They were still 
hostile, still darkened in their hearts, still unwilling to bow their knee to his wisdom, to his authority. How tragic this is to agree with Jesus in principle and yet not submit your life to him in a living faith. Jesus has silenced all of his opponents every single time, whether it's been the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees, each one has been left with their mouths stopped. But have they believed? Do they cling in faith to him? More to the point, do we? Do we cling to the Lord Jesus? It's time for Jesus now to turn the tables. Jesus continues to press this matter of his authority, his kingship and his, his divinity. If you look at verse 41, but he said to them, he won't let them go, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus takes two Old Testament truths here that on the face of things look like they pose an exegetical challenge. It looks like maybe, just maybe, there's one of those supposed Bible contradictions going on here. The first is an almost direct citation from Psalm 110 and verse one. The rationale goes like this. Over in Psalm 110, God addresses the king through the mouth of David. He says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you had been in the synagogue, they would have said, Adonai says to my Lord, not wanting to pronounce the divine name, which is what you find essentially in the New Testament. The Lord said to to my Lord, but either way, it is the covenant keeping God who speaks this oracle to the Davidic king, extending to him this place of honor and authority at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 110, it goes on, you might remember, rule in the midst of your enemies. He will execute judgment among the nations. It's a royal psalm. It's one that is composed by David. And yet, in the mouth of Jesus, here in our text, David speaks of Yahweh's promise to to one that David describes as my Lord, You see, Jesus is clearly drawing attention to the fact that the covenant-keeping God prophesies through David about the messianic king. So David reverences and adores the one who will sit in this this place of honor and, and authority at the right hand of God's throne. So that's one truth. But then you have other texts like 2 Samuel chapter seven, where you you have the promised king coming through David's line. The Lord raising up offspring after David, someone who would come from his body, uh, whose kingdom and whose throne would be established forever. 
Well, then comes the rub. If you look at verse 44 in our passage, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, brothers and sisters, the issue here has more to do with, physi- more to do with than, than mere physiology. The issue isn't just how can David speak of someone that hasn't yet been born. It's an issue of authority, of lordship. For the Jews, it would have been almost unimaginable for a father to bow down before his son, let alone Israel's greatest king. The ordinary expectation is always that a son honors his father, not the other way around. This is the heart of the matter. How can it be that David reverences and shows honor to one who is his son? So Jesus raises his own dilemma here. He puts them between a rock and a hard place. What do you make of that, scribes? Well, the answer, of course, lies in the word Lord. Jesus Christ is more than David's son. Later, Peter will say in his Pentecost Day sermon, for David did not ascend into the heavens, talking about his earthly physical body, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David's son is David's Lord. Great David's greater son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he deserves the praise in the adoration of all of creation now and evermore. Now, it is with these same scribes in view that Jesus goes on to issue this severe warning in the hearing of all of the people about the odiousness, about the danger of false religion and spiritual hypocrisy. He tells the disciples, Beware the scribes, beware them, that they like to walk around in long robes. They're consumed with what others think about them, with how they look to other people. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts. So so these are men who are obsessed with matters of status, with games of of religious one-upmanship. This was like a disease eating away at their souls. It was like, it, it was something that infected every act of purported piety. They devour widows' houses. Presumably that means they use their office and their, their station and the trust that they had with the people to take advantage of them, to prey on, on the most vulnerable around them. For a pretense, they make long prayers. Everything was calculated along the lines of, how will this make me look? 
What will other people think about me? Not in the eyes of God. I'm not concerned about that, but what do men think about me? And so they would pray a long time and in just the right way to garner the attention of onlookers. What a temptation this is. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Did you know that that can even include something like prayer? Why do we do the things that we do, beloved? Why do we pray? Why do we come to church? What motivates our hearts? When we lift up our voices in song, who are we singing for? Are we conscious of the Lord's gaze? or that of other men? Have we examined our hearts in these things? Have we said to the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. J.C. Ryle says this, whatever else we are in religion, let us be true. However feeble, our faith and hope and love and obedience may be. Let us see to it that they, are, that they are genuine and sincere. Let us abhor the very idea of part acting and mask wearing in our Christianity. Beware false religion and spiritual hypocrisy. Why? those that engage in such things will receive the greater condemnation. It will not be those who have never heard the gospel. They will still die in their sins. Don't get me wrong. None of us are, 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 are all of us are without excuse. But it won't be those to whom Preachers who have never, uh, preachers have never gone to who will receive what Jesus is talking about here, the greater condemnation. It will be those who have heard, those on whom the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has shone so clearly and yet have loved the darkness rather than the light. They will be punished more severely. For them, there will be the, the second death. Charles Wesley set part of this passage to verse. I want to read you what he says. Alas for us who need beware of men that sit in Moses's chair and should to heaven the people guide. Men with the pomp of office clad in robes pontifical arrayed, but stained with avarice and pride. They love to be preferred, adored, affect the state and style of Lord, and shine magnificently great. They for precedency contend, and on ambition's scale ascend, hard laboring for the highest seat. The church they call their proper care, the temple of the Lord, they are abusers of their legal power. 
Greedy the church's goods to seize, their wealth they without end increase, and the poor widow's house devour. Oh, what a change they soon shall know. When torn away by death they go, reluctant from their splendid feasts, condemned in hottest flames to dwell and find the spacious courts of hell paved with the skulls of Christian priests. I tremble to speak of such things, but they must be said. More than anything, they must be said to us because we are the ones to whom a passage like this has particular application. Those in our position, those who have heard and who continue to hear, beware of false religion. I don't want to just leave you there. I want to consider briefly what the inverse of verses 46 to 47 would look like. What would true religion and service to God and worship that is pure and undefiled look like? Well, first it would be one where the concern is not with the outward things, but the inward. The adornment of the heart and not the outer man, not the externals, but the fruit of the spirit. We must be careful to keep the heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. It would be one where in public worship, our focus is not on glad handing or on collecting to oneself titles and honor, but preferring one another in love, looking looking actively and intentionally for ways to do nothing out of envy or selfish conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Don't just look to your own interests. Everyone does that. Look also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what we find In this counterexample with the widow's offering, at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus sees the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then there's this poor widow and she puts in all that she had, just two small copper coins. Now, just to put this in perspective, you've heard of a denarius. A denarius was about a day's worth of wages. The, the, the copper coin here is a lepton. A lepton is one 128th of a denarius. So if you worked a full day worth of work, a 10-hour day, and you gave two of these, it would be equivalent to eight minutes worth of work. That's all. That's all she gave. She did not give much. And yet, she gave everything. 
She gave everything. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And that right there tells you all that you need to know in terms of where the treasure of her heart really was. Continuing on, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Widows, others in vulnerable positions are not people to be exploited, but those to be served. They're those to be loved and to to, to be shown mercy to without any expectation of repayment whatsoever. And then when we pray, what do our prayers look like? We offer prayer that issues forth from hearts that long to fellowship with God and that want to know him more. And brothers and sisters, I would add to that where that isn't the case, where our affections for God and for the things of God are not where they need to be, we bring that to God also. We don't pretend, in other words, to be something that we're not. We cry out to God for his help and for his grace. All of our worship arises not out of a concern for appearance, but sincere affection for the Savior. These are the characteristics of the sons of God. In short, you have a people who aren't concerned with self-comparison and self-promotion, but with the exaltation of God and the love of others. A people who are in the world, but they are not at all of it, not of it. We belong to the kingdom of God. And so we live as such with the certain confidence that we will have a share in the resurrection. God help us in this for his name's sake. Let's pray. Oh God, Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for what Christ has wrought, that you have made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who is crucified for us. Thank you, Lord, that in him we have life, everlasting life that outpaces and outshines anything that we can imagine on this earth, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, thank you for the word that we have heard today. Thank you for all of the ways that it challenges our hearts. God, we we ask for your help in these things. We, We ask for your help as we think about living unto you glorifying your great name in all that we do. We have another year before us. We want to bring you more glory, God, in the year ahead than we did before. God, we pray that we would not live as some kind of functional Sadducee, people who who live as if there's no resurrection, no life in the age to come. God, may we live whatever we do, for your, your glory, your namesake. Lord, I pray that you would show us uh, particular ways that we need to put to death what is earthly in us and to live all of our lives, whatever we do in word or in deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to you through him. Help us, God. Help us, God. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.